Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, Hamilton City Council is backing the Grey Cup bid. Ambassador to China John McCallum says the CFO of Huawei has a strong case to avoid extradition. And the State of the Union has been postponed after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi declined to invite the president. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Hamilton City Council on last night, uh, they dealt with a number of the issues that we've talked about over the last couple of weeks here, some controversial, uh, some visionary. Uh, one of the ones that spent uh, took an awful lot of the time, of course, was uh, the, uh, I, I guess, finalizing the details about the, the Great Cup bid. Now, that went before General Issues Committee a while ago, and there were some uh, questions raised by some of the councillors about, uh, you know, should we make our bid uh, numbers uh, public information? Uh, the CFL, the Tiger Cats, and uh, everyone else was saying you can't do that. These are the rules, and there has to be some confidentiality uh, going forward. Well, uh, the uh, good guys won the big. I was, I, I'm a big supporter of this, obviously, and I think it's going to be great for the city. Uh, and one of the folks that was actually steering council through this, and I think was very instructive in the information uh, as it was coming forward, was Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Mr. Mayor, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. You know, the difference, uh, Mr. Mayor, between the General Issues Committee and Council is usually three or four days, a week or so. Uh, it, it looked to me from what I saw last night is that was time well spent, because I think you and a few other people spent an awful lot of time, uh, I think, clearing up some of the misconceptions about what some of your colleagues had on Council. Yeah, I think we had some, some time to uh, kind of, everybody had some time to reflect, and we also had some time to alter the motion so that we would... Uh, be able to spell out exactly what it is that we're prepared to provide, but not necessarily put the number on it. And I think that for our staff, that that was the big concerning issue, and for the uh, for the uh, CFL and for the Tiger Cats is why would you, uh, you know, put all your numbers on the table before you you've been successful? So where we ended up last night was a a more comprehensive motion to indicate uh, the things that we would do to help support the bid. Most of them are in kind uh, contributions; they have a cost, but they're still in kind. And uh, without putting the uh, the overall number on it, and at the same time say that uh, if the bid is successful, all of the numbers will become public, and that was always the intention. I think no one no one wants to keep a secret here in terms of what the cost would be. No one, quite frankly, argued against participating in the bid. Uh, everyone was 100% behind this. Uh, it was really just a question of process, and uh, you know we have some that uh, that are very focused on process, and as we should be. Uh, and, and making sure that at, at some point uh, that, that numbers become public, it's totally open and transparent, and of all the things that we're doing to, to help support this for not only the Tiger Cats, but uh, the CFL, and for our community in terms of the economic development spinoff, is, uh, is uh, totally open and transparent and public. It's a question of timing. So uh, you don't uh, you don't negotiate with somebody by uh, putting all your cards on the table right at the very beginning. We have other projects that are happening in the community that our staff are negotiating as we speak, and uh, you know, putting a number out there would prejudice uh, those uh, you know discussions. So, ultimately, uh, I think we ended up at the right place. Well, uh, the thing that I think bothered me about this, you know, you and I talked about this uh, the last time you were here in studio, and I've talked to some of your council colleagues. We've talked with representatives from the Tiger Cats, and 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 I got a little ticked off about the insinuation from some people that there was something covert going on. And, and as you explained it, and I thought the other parties involved in this explained it, this is how you do business. There has to be some sense of confidentiality when there's a bid process in place, and, and people have to understand that. 
Yeah, and I think uh, I think they came around to that, and uh, you know we uh, you know some some are you know of the view that everything that we do as a city should be made public uh, you know right away. Well, you know there are there are you know issues that uh, could harm the city and the taxpayers uh, if we do that in certain certain instances. So confidentiality is maintained when it becomes when it's a, a, a human resource issue, when there's contractual issues that we're dealing with. Uh, there's a, there's a period of time that there is a confidentiality associated with that, and when it comes to legal advice, you don't uh, put all your cards on the table. You want to protect the interests of the taxpayers, so you can't. In, in some instances, and in, in that very in the, on those very narrow margins, uh, there needs to be confidentiality because you're you're potentially going to cost the taxpayers more money if you portray that. And so uh, there's good reason for it. It's not because we want to keep secrets. It's because we want to protect costs. We want to protect the process we want to be successful in the bid so why would you compromise that and at the same time uh, you know ultimately all of this will be public information and that's always the case i as you guys were going through this yesterday i, I was reminded of an event that happened and this was way back when i was on council it was the first time that uh, it looked like we were going to get the the canadian open back at hamilton golf and country club so that would have been what 2002 2000 something yep. like that and and we had a, we had a, an in camera session with the the Royal Canadian Golf Association, the RCGA, and their representatives were saying, "Okay, this is what we wanted. This is what we said, but this has to stay in this room because there are three other cities that are bidding for this, and if they see this, then they're going to alter their bids, and it's it's going to be very tricky." And I thought, right. "Okay, I can understand that." And and I, I walked into the the yes, councillors' lounge uh, to grab a cup of coffee as this was going on, and there's one of the other councillors on the phone to the media with spewing the numbers out, and, and we almost lost the bid. I mean, because it was published the next day, and and all of a sudden, you know, the you know what hit the fan, and we had to rejig everything. And I thought, uh, and you don't do that in the business world. And and I'm glad that council seemed to come around and understand exactly what has to be done here. Yeah, you know, you don't. Not only do you not do that in the business world, you wouldn't do that on a on a personal basis either. You don't uh, you don't buy a house uh, and uh, you know right right off the get go tell them exactly what you're uh, what you're prepared to pay. You negotiate. And, and you don't make that a public issue. You don't broadcast that all over the place. You don't share that with, uh, you know, everybody that you can, uh, you can find. You basically keep it between you and the, the buyer and the seller and the, and the agent. And so, uh, and if, uh, you know, someone else knows that you're prepared to pay $500,000 and uh, they know that you did that in a previous uh, negotiations, uh, well, guess what the number is going to be the next time you negotiate. So this is not just, uh, you know, a council issue, not just a business issue. It's, it's an everyday issue that people maintain confidentiality on their personal matters, on their, the things that they negotiate, on the, you know, the finances that they're involved in. Uh, you know, that, that, that becomes, a, uh, I, I think, an issue of protecting their interests in whatever it is that they're participating in. And that's exactly the same for, for the city. Uh, you know, having people portray that either costs you the bid or costs you more money. Uh, one way or the other, and so uh, you know we want, we don't want either one of those things to happen. We want to we want to be efficient with uh, the tax dollars that we have. We don't want to spend unnecessarily that we don't have to because we portrayed some sort of a bid process, and at the same time we want to make sure that uh, the bids that are that we are participating in, or contracts that we're negotiating, we're getting the best price for the uh, the city of Hamilton. That's uh, that's sensible, logical thing to do, and it happens in everyday life. Uh, the, so, and I was glad to see that a number of councillors who actually had some reservations at the uh, General Issues Committee uh, with that new information seemed to come around and understand uh, the, the, the complexity of this and what had to happen. And a few of them changed their votes. And I, you got to give them credit for being open-minded about that and listening to the information that was available to them. 
But there's another yeah. side to this, too, and I, you brought it up in your, your comments last night, Mr. Mayor. Uh, city staff and the Tiger Cats, I mean, the, your staff did an awful lot of the heavy lifting here, and an awful lot of this work was done before it actually came to council. And and, right. uh, and Tourism Hamilton has to be a, a player in this as well. I mean, an awful lot of people have put some in, uh, heavy-duty work into this. We have, we have very talented people that know what they're doing when it comes to event uh, organizing and event bids. This is what they do as a, a full-time part of their job. They also not only bid on them, they also make them happen. And so, uh, you know, very talented, experienced people. And when they, when they come to me and say, Mr. Mayor, that, you know, if we let these numbers out, this is going to compromise this bid and other potential bids, I'm listening to these professionals that know what they're doing. Uh, I don't, I don't uh, get involved in the bid processes that, uh, that they are involved in day-to-day and do it every day. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're, they're not only bidding on the, this particular thing. They've, they've got conferences that are coming into town that they help facilitate. Uh, there, are, there are meetings that, uh, that are held in various locations throughout the city that they help facilitate. And then, they, of course, we look at the Junos and the Country Music Awards, all of them catering to a certain audience out there that people love, and that actually helps promote uh, business in, in our community at the same time. So, you know, every time there's a major event in the city of Hamilton, downtown or otherwise, we have, uh, we have uh, you know, the restaurants fill up, uh, the bars, the taverns, the music's, uh, you know, going everywhere, brings vitality and life to our uh, inner city. I mean, it just promotes business. You know, there's a $100 million economic impact. Now, I would say, you know, we're always a little <clears throat> jaundiced when it comes to that. Uh, you know, those numbers tend to be high. But if, even if it's half as much, that's a significant investment back into the city of Hamilton. So our professional event staff, tourism staff, Carrie Brooks Joyner, Sharon Murphy, the, these folks have been doing this for decades. They know what they're doing. Uh, they've uh, brought an enormous amount of great events to our community. I have nothing but the greatest respect for them. And when they tell me that, uh, that there's an issue here that we need to protect, I'm all ears. Well, and to that point, I, I was talking about the, uh, the, the Canadian Golf uh, the Open, and, uh, of course, just previous to that, of course, with the World Cycling Championships. And we were relatively new, uh, you know, back in those days, and it was a matter of, okay, we're, we're not really good at this yet, uh, but you've got some people with a track record now, and you've just mentioned a number of the uh, world-class events and national events that have come to Hamilton right now. And I'm not suggesting they've got a pattern and they just follow it because every event is different and takes a different skill set to be able to do this, but you've got some top-notch pros in the city now. Top-notch pros, you know, it's always the quality of the people you have and the relationships that they build. So over the years, they've built great relationships with all of these organizations, and they keep coming back now because they know that when they land here in Hamilton, it's a smooth ride. People know what they're doing. They have a, they have a, a roadmap that uh, it's already mapped out. They, uh, they give them the assistance they require in terms of uh, developing and uh, engineering the venues that are happening. And when you have a, a Juno Award, it's not just a one-evening event that happens, uh, you know, in one night at the uh, at the arena, it's a it's a week long event with whole a whole array of venues happening throughout the entire city from uh, you know one one side of the city to another, and many 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 locations downtown and along the waterfront, and all of that is facilitated and organized through the, the good work of our great staff. So, I uh, you're right. I think we have uh, top notch people that have uh, developed a, a talent and a, and a reputation for being a solid. A uh, well well oiled team that uh, that can help facilitate these events happening in Hamilton in a very positive and effective way, and that's why we're getting this kind of attention. Uh, the Great Cup has not been here for a while. We've had the Junos recently. We had this, you know, the Country Music Awards. You, you mentioned uh, the uh, the bike races that uh, I'm sure are you know looking for a location again. I mean, our reputation actually 
precedes ourselves because the quality of the people that are doing this work have uh, have really built the kind of relationships that are that's holding the city of Hamilton in good stead and it has a good reputation for hosting these things. Listen, there's, a, there's something that wasn't lost on me as I was uh, watching the proceedings, and and, and I, I wanted you to comment on this too. Uh, and and. Listen, the Tiger Cats and, and and the city were involved in a rather acrimonious discussion, so we say. And, and in hindsight, I look at this and say I think both parties, both the city and the Tiger Cats, were victims of some incompetence by higher levels of government and the people they hired. But you got thrown together. Uh, it was pretty clear last night from your comments, clearly, uh, the Tiger Cats' comments when they were at GIC and a number of the councillors, that that's way back in the past and everybody's moving on and working together now. Absolutely. And you know what? Uh, you know, I, I more than anyone, uh, you know, uh, felt, felt the impact of that, I think, uh, you know, through an election and through a you know, stadium issue. My therapy is over. I have to tell you, <laughs> I, I'm done with that. I'm, uh, I'm now uh, beyond therapy. I'm, uh, I'm healed. And, uh, you know, I think the relationship is now terrific. Uh, we have an ongoing relationship with uh, Bob Young and the Tiger Cats and the leadership there. Everybody's working from a from a platform on what's in the what's in the best interest of the event. Uh, you know, of course, the Tiger Cats have an interest. Everyone's got their interest, but we're doing it in a, such a way that we don't have the controversies anymore. We're not uh, we're not debating a stadium location. The lawsuits are all gone. Uh, you know, we had our issue in terms of uh, you know I.O. Ontario and uh, you know the kind of stadium they left us. We're, we're past that now, and everybody's bringing that stadium into. A, into uh, the, the condition that it needs to be in, so we got a top-notch facility, and we've got a team that cares about uh, cares about Hamilton, and uh, you know ne- that was never in question. It was always the the debate around uh, you know the various issues that we were dealing with. So we're well past that. Uh, I think the partnership has evolved, and you know as long as we re- remain respectful of the needs of not only the city, the Tiger Cats, and uh, and the community at large, we're going to be in uh, good shape and. Uh, you know, some of the players, uh, Glenn Gibson's been a, a great uh, advocate for the Tiger Cats, has, br- has brought some uh, a steady influence to their operation. Uh, you know, they, Mr. Mitchell, as much as I've uh, had disagreements with them, uh, we have, a, uh, we have a, you know, a working relationship that's functional and uh, working quite nicely. Thank you very much. And so, uh, you know what, uh, we're past it. We're on to uh, bigger and better things. And uh, you know what, we all say that, the, you know, this football team has been uh, you know a dynasty here in Hamilton that uh, that I've always respected, and uh, from from here to forward, we're going to continue to work to ensure that uh, what's good for the Tiger Cats is good for the city, is good for the fans, and it's good for the community as a whole. Did you get any uh, indication at all as to when we're actually going to get a decision on this? I mean, Mr. Ambrosi, when he was at, at the General Issues Committee, said he thought he was going to get uh, something by the end of the month. Now I'm hearing it could be early February. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's. February is what I'm hearing, so uh, you know, I, which I don't think is too long to wait. I think uh, you know the the Great Cup is not happening until November sometime, or you know, certainly not this year, but the year that they're applying for this. So I expect that we'll hear something in February. Yeah, you know, save and save and accept uh, you know whatever wrinkles that might come up in the meantime. But it seems to me that uh, you know this bidding process has also been refined on the CFL side, so they uh, they also know what they want. And uh, they've had some great events, uh, you know, in, in recent years in terms of it's really expanded. The, the, uh, the, the week-long uh, Grey Cup event has become quite, uh, quite the national event, much bigger than just a single game. It's, it's really a m- much more of an entertainment event. And so uh, they know what they want. They know what they're looking for. So I imagine that they'll, they'll, they'll have a speedy process that uh, will get us a decision in February. 
Well, all we need now is to uh, get a nice new arena, and we can take a shot at the Memorial Cup <laughs> after that, I guess. But uh, let's let's deal with this okay. one first, I guess. Okay, my, my eyes starting to twitch again. <laughs> Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger, thanks so much for the time, Mr. Mayor. Thanks a lot, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. On the federal scene, I guess this is really, this broadens into the international scene. We all know what's going on now between Canada, the United States, and the Chinese governments. And it has to do with the arrest of uh, Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou in Vancouver uh, a few weeks ago now. And uh, the Chinese, of course, are irate at the Canadian government for doing this, even though the Canadians did it at the request of the Americans. There is an agreement that goes back and forth between a number of countries, a reciprocal agreement about these sorts of things. Uh, But we seem to be the focus of uh, the Chinese uh, wrath for the longest time. Uh, it m- seemed to be subsiding. Uh, they backed off some of the threats that they were making against Canada on an economic trade and, and other ways. Of course, there's still the two arrests that are being negotiated. But as soon as the uh, United States announced that they were going to begin extradition, extradition proceedings, uh, things seemed to, t- to lessen just a little bit. Then came uh, John McCallum. John McCallum is the ambassador to China and apparently held a closed-door meeting with the Chinese media. The Canadian media didn't even know about this. They weren't invited, didn't know anything about it. And in that meeting, uh, Mr. McCallum made some comments about the extradition hearing, suggesting that uh, Meng actually had a very strong case for beating the extradition uh, because of what he said, uh, that the Americans were doing this and actually asked for the arrest for political reasons, not at all for uh, the economic reasons and the breach of uh, trade agreements that they had talked about. So it seems as if uh, Mr. McCallum has uh, kind of stepped in the diplomatic doo-doo here uh, and we have to wonder about what the ramifications are going to be. Joining us to talk about this is Christopher Waddell, a professor of School of Journalism and Communication at Carleton University and an expert on political journalism. Uh, professor, thanks so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Great, Bill. Thanks very much. This is, uh, this is something that, just as we thought things were cooling off a little bit, uh, Mr. McCallum's comments uh, and actions actually become public record. Uh, the, the media is outraged. Uh, the Chinese, I, I, I'm sure, are probably embracing this because they love this. This is probably one of the arguments they're going to use in the extradition hearing. But I, I'm wondering about the implications this is going to have between Canada-U.S. relations. Well, I mean, I think the first thing we have to do is kind of uh, not rush to judgment about much of anything. Generally, um, these days, uh, anything that happens tends to generate an instant reaction. Um, everyone's outraged. Um, but these are this is a particular case where there's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of things happening at different levels. And I think you need to be pretty cautious in terms of making a quick judgment about what, what it was all about. Mr. McCallum, you're right, was speaking in Markham to Chinese journalists. Things to remember in that are Mr. McCallum represented Markham as an MP prior to that. So he's, And Markham has a very large population, Chinese-Canadian population. And, and so I think Mr. It, it's hard to imagine Mr. McCallum didn't know what he was talking about when he said it, which leads to another, uh, and particularly where he said it and to, and to whom he said it, which was, uh, which was designed to generate a reaction, I think, in China. Um, also, Canada's ambassador to the United States, David McNaughton, was talking in Washington a couple of days ago and was, was generally making a bit of a complaint that this is a dispute between the United States and China, but because we lived up to the terms of an extradition agreement, we're caught in the middle and we're paying the price. So we've now got a couple of Canadian diplomats saying things about this that, that leads you almost to think that there, there may be another level at which stuff is going on. 
And unfortunately, with cases like this, you really don't know that until you actually see what the end result is. But in the interim, as you mentioned, there's the two Canadians being held in prison, and there's the other Canadian who faced the death sentence when he was retried on a, on drug charges that appear to be all part of retaliation for what Canada has, has done um, in 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 um, arresting um, the the Huawei CFO. But but uh, she's not in prison. She's not. She's in fact in her house in Vancouver. Uh, yeah, Ambassador McNaughton's comments actually, I thought, kind of nailed it, uh, Chris. Well, you see what's going on mm-hmm. here because it, it, it does seem, I think, encapsulate exactly what's going on here. I mean, we were asked, we are bound by the treaty we have, and it's not just with the United States uh, to do this. And uh, uh, I think one of the things that I think caused a great deal of angst in Ottawa is that even after the arrest was made, the U.S. were kind of dragging their heels on beginning extradition hearings, and and uh, and they saw that we were taking the heat for this, and they didn't seem to mind that much. Well, in fact, President Trump, in fact, at one point very early on, indicated that that if, in fact, he could strike a trade deal with China, and remember, he's busy imposing tariffs on Chinese goods, and China is imposing tariffs on American goods, and they're in a they're in a big trade fight. He, as much as said, uh, that if if he could strike a deal, he would be prepared to drop the extradition, um, strike a trade deal. He he would be prepared to drop the extradition um, proceedings. Whether he could do that or not is another issue, but uh, it does leave open the question of the degree to which, from the American side, this is actually an issue about law, or is it an issue about uh, about politics? So that's a pretty that, that McCallum, line is that line has been blurred though, hasn't it? Over the last couple of absolutely. years, especially. Absolutely, and in fact, in fact, in the, in the Economist this week magazine, um, there's an interesting argument that that basically gets into um, what's described as the extraterritorial extraterritoriality uh, laws that the United States tries to enforce, which is does the should the United States be able to try to enforce its laws against companies around the world who may be acting and operating not in the United States? So there's kind of this is opening a, a, a bigger sort of a, a bigger debate about U.S. law, about extraterritoriality of U.S. law. And and in this particular case, it relates back to what Huawei may have been doing at a time with uh, with Iran, at a time before sanctions were imposed. And was Huawei trying to disguise the fact that it was selling equipment or working with uh, with Iranian companies at a time when it may have been um, against sanctions back in 2013-2014. So it's it, there's layer after layer, and it's not it's not a simple or easy case. And and when the judge gets to decide it, and I don't, I don't think I don't think it's going to be decided on the basis of either what Mr. Trump says or what Mr. McCallum says, uh, but what the arguments are in court, it will be interesting to see. Well, and I know that Mr. McCallum, we're told because uh, we, we weren't in the meeting, obviously, when he was talking to the Chinese media. Uh, right. he's, he actually made that point uh, that, uh, look, ultimately, this is a, a legal issue and it's going to be decided by judges. But, I mean, is it prudent for an ambassador to actually weigh in on that and state his opinion then? Depends. Um, it depends on, on whether he's doing it on his own initiative, or which may not be a wise thing to do, or whether he's doing it in concert with and the knowledge of the other people in the Canadian government, and whether it's being done to deliver a message to certain audiences. And the initial reaction... From that I've seen in some of the media in, uh, in China seems to be that that was met fairly positively, or is it, or is it just being done in the same way Mr. Trump seems to do things in the United States, which is issue a whole bunch of contradictory comments about various things and leave everybody confused about what actually is going on? So, uh, it, you know, I think I, 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 for people who aren't involved in this, I think it'd be cautious. I, I would be cautious about. Um, rushing to judgment about what actually is happening because it's it just in all these disputes 
Um, there's often back channels between different countries, between people talking to other people, messages being delivered to other people, and and this may be one small part of that for public, and it may be very different what's going on in private. Well, and and it, as we just refer, referenced a couple of minutes ago, that blurry line now between uh, between politics and and, right. and and justice in situations like this. I mean, the, the, I guess the facts that we do know to this stage is the investigation into Huawei was actually started by the Justice Department of the United States and had nothing at all to do with the uh, the president's office. Uh, but he seems Correct. to have jumped onto this and say, "Hey, wait a second! I can use this to my political advantage." And that's that's, that's got to cause a, to that's, that's right. Got, yeah, that's, that's got to right. cause a great deal of frustration with the Justice Department because they're saying, "Hey, that's this is not your game." Well, exactly, because because justice decisions by the Justice Department are not supposed to be interf- uh, not supposed to be subject to political interference from whoever the politicians might be at the time. And if that starts to be the case, then in fact the United States end up doing a lot of what appears to be happening in China, which is decisions. And, and that's the complaint about China is that the rule of law doesn't really exist when when it can be overruled in this way, and when things ha- like the arrest of the two Canadians, which appears to be. On, for all intents and purposes, retaliation for what's going on in Vancouver. But given what's happened, and especially in the United States over the last couple of years, this idea that uh, politicians shouldn't interfere in Justice Department activities, that horse is out of the barn, isn't it? Seems to be, although uh, <laughs> although I think it's st- I think it's still a good principle we should try to enforce yeah. in Canada, and we should try to encourage other for- other countries to do as well. But in, in certainly in the case of the United States, as it relates to the Mueller inquiry about Mr. Trump and his connections to Russia, he certainly has been trying to influence things right from the start. Whether it's firing FBI um, chiefs or or trying to get rid of um, attorneys general or deputy attorney generals or all those sorts of things. Yeah, and and uh, that those may be a part, but they're not necessarily separate. I think it goes to attitude. I guess what's what's coming out of the Oval Office. What's this do? Right. Let's go. Let's go back to Ottawa for a second, if we sure. could. Uh, you just mentioned that McCallum is a former f- uh, cabinet minister, of course, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, so he's he's not new to the political game. Uh, now he's the ambassador. Is it not their job, whether you're a cabinet minister or an ambassador, to simply echo the the stated policy of of the, your government? In this case, the Trudeau government, as opposed to to freelancing, as some people suggesting he's doing here yes but what we don't know is whether the, is whether what he did in speaking to the chinese media had was done with the uh, advance notice and authority of the prime minister's office or the department of foreign of, of uh, global affairs canada or whether he was freelancing so uh, you know it's 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 hard to uh, in john mccallum at one point was chief economist of the royal bank of canada before he got into politics he's been around the media for a very long time he knows the media and understands the media and it, it's hard to imagine that he would freelance about something like this. Now, it could have happened, but it just, and, and also knows from being in China, knows, the, um, knows the, the sensitivities around these things and knows the way messages get delivered in different ways. So to me, it seems strange that, all, that on such a, an important and contentious issue, he would just decide to do this on his own volition or, or suddenly was tricked into saying something he didn't want to say. Now, it may have happened. But it it, it it would be very surprising to me if that happened, which leads to the question of what's the bigger game being played here and 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 is is are steps being are steps being taken now to condition a decision later on or we're we're trying to look at what happened today and and look into the future and when we know what the future is what happened yesterday or a couple of days ago may turn out to have been less freelancing and more part of a plan now the plan may not work too but that's some of the um 
challenges you face when you get into these situations. And, and they, you're right. I mean, behind closed doors, I mean, I'm certain there's evaluations that are going on here. Uh, and given the fact that we're trying to uh, negotiate the release of the two Canadians and maybe even commute the death sentence of that third, uh, right. it would be to Canada's benefit if uh, China looked more favorably upon Canada and, and maybe making comments like this uh, would be a move in that direction. Uh, so th- you can understand that there might be some political, uh, you know, motivation behind that. And, and as for my point earlier about, uh, well, are they going to tick off a, a Trump in the White House? I, there's a point, I guess, to be made here. Can it get any worse? I mean, it's already frosty between well, the two d- administrations. <laughs> well, I think that's right, although some days Mr. Trump says we're their great friends, and some days we're apparently um, ripping off the United States. So it kind of comes and goes, and you just don't know. So I, I think... I think the Americans, if they haven't understood before, will certainly know now that that by Canada living up to the terms of the extradition agreement, it's put Canada's uh, it's put Canada out front, just as Mr. as Ambassador McNaughton said, and put us made us the brunt of everyone's criticism. And and from the Chinese case as well, don't forget if China wants to settle its trade dispute with the United States, it's probably in its interest to beat up on Canada than to beat up on the United States. Because if they beat up on the United States, it's going to be tougher to say, "Oh, and by the way, we've settled our trade, uh, we settled our trade dispute with them." So, to some extent, we're the meat in the sandwich, and we have to kind of uh, um, live with that. I'm afraid. But we've got. But, we'll, but it'll all be. But we'll all. It, now the United States has indicated that it wants to proceed with the extradition hearing. We're going to, at some point before very long, find out exactly what evidence the United States has, and a decision will be made whether that's enough evidence to actually extradite um, the CFO and actually have her go to the United States or not. And, and as Mr. McCallum says, I, I think if you stand back and look at it, I think what he says is probably fairly accurate in terms of there is a debate about about whether, in fact, um, there is enough evidence to extradite her under the reasons the United States say they want to. That's a valid point. I mean, Mr. McCallum was not the first one to come down with this line of thinking that uh, that there could have been political no. motivations for this. I, I mean, I made a comment about that about two weeks ago on the program, and I'm not the first one. I mean, it's. Uh, I think a lot of sure. people came to that conclusion as soon as the, this whole thing started to unravel. Yeah, yeah, and 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 certainly, you know, I think it's fairly clear. And and what is interesting, and what Canada has been doing or trying to do, is to to argue to other countries around the world that they should pay attention to this, because um, if you do something that angers or alienates the Chinese administration, then perhaps your nationals in China may in fact pay the price, and that's something that we all should be concerned about. Because um, obviously the people who've been arrested have nothing to do with this situation, and and uh, and and um, they're just being they're they're caught in the middle again. And 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 Canada's making the case to other countries that if you have a problem with China and China doesn't like what you've done, and China's original argument in all this was was that Canadian politicians should just intervene and stop the extradition hearing, but. To which we have responded, saying that we can't do that because we do have the rule of law, and the and law has to, and, and the courts and the extradition system has to proceed the way it normally would. Otherwise, otherwise it does become just a, a, a political state rather than rather than a rule of law. So, so other countries need to be thinking about if they, and it's not big other countries; it's more likely medium and small other countries. So China does have the opportunity to sort of try to pressure. Very quickly, we're just about out of time, but I got to get your uh, opinion on this. Uh, if, in fact, this continues to be uh, looked upon favorably, Canada's uh, comments about this uh, by the Chinese government, uh, we're hopeful that it's going to uh, lead to the release of this. And, and there's some some trade possibilities between Canada and China that that seem to be on the table, or at least uh, initial discussions about that. Is there a possibility that we could, at the end of the, this whole process, uh, come out smelling like a rose? 
Um, probably not. <laughs> if, if, we, if we do, I think it'll take a couple of seasons before that happens. Um, as I said, I think all these, all these disputes operate on a whole bunch of different levels. There's what's said publicly, there's what's said privately, there may be even a second level of what's said privately, and, and, and there's a degree of public theater involved in it all on all sides um, for the media and for public consumption, uh, but we don't really know how serious all that was until we see the end result and see what happens. I suspect, if nothing else, I suspect what this might do is there was, there was um, you're right, Canada was talking about a free trade agreement with, the United, with, uh, with China or trying to negotiate a free trade agreement with China. I think it may lead more Canadians to think they need to, we need to think carefully about how close we want our relationship to be with China and under what terms, um, because it not, you know, it, it, it to give you an example, back in 2008, when when Beijing was a, was about to host the um, the Summer Olympics, people thought that hosting the Summer Olympics was opening China up, so it would be more democratic. Uh, things were different, things would change, all those sorts of things. A few people who were very knowledgeable of China said that's not going to happen. They turned out to be right, and I think this is just an example of how we need to have our eyes wide open in all our dealings with China, which doesn't mean we don't deal with them, but we also um, need to be realistic about what our expectations might be about what we can achieve. Professor Christopher Waddell, uh, as always, thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Sure, Bill. Thanks very much. We'll talk again soon. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It was a fascinating day in uh, United States politics yesterday. The State of the Union address in the United States, which is a tradition, uh, is uh, being postponed. After House Speaker Nancy Pelosi chose to decline sending an invitation for the president to speak. Uh, It's the latest salvo, I guess, in the ongoing battle between not just Trump and the Democrats, but uh, obviously between other politicals involved in what's happening with the uh, partial government shutdown, which is now into its fifth week. Joining us to talk about this is Thomas J. Whalen, Associate Professor in Social Science at the College of General Studies at Boston University. Professor, thank you for the time. It's great to have you with us today. My pleasure. What were your uh, reactions to to the back and forth that went on between Nancy Pelosi and and the president yesterday? Well, it just shows just how off the rails the United States federal government has become and just how divided American society is. And it doesn't look like there's going to be a solution to this problem anytime soon. We're at the lowest of low depths here, politically speaking. Let's talk about the players involved here. I, I watched a lot of the commentary on all the networks last night as they tried to dissect this, and I guess some of them give their their spin on it. Uh, this was a this was a power battle, really, between these two, wasn't it? Yes, it's uh, political football, and uh, the thing here is that you know Nancy Pelosi um, has somewhat of an upper hand because you know she is Speaker of the House of Representatives. And as such, uh, she has control over the chamber where the State of the Union address has traditionally been uh, delivered. So, you know, if she says no, uh, the president has to abide by that because under the United States Constitution, we have a separation of powers. And in many ways, I think Nancy Pelosi has given President Trump, who's used to getting his way without question, kind of a, a civics lesson in American government. Well, and that's one of the perspectives I hit on it as I watched it unfold yesterday. Uh, ever since Trump made his announcement at Trump Tower that he's going to run for the, the nomination and ultimately the presidency, 
uh, I guess in, in life, too, and in business, he's always defined the rules of the fight, uh, and he's wanted to always be on the high ground. He did that during the, the, the Republican debates. He certainly did it in the debates with Hillary Clinton, and I guess he's, he's tried to do it here. Uh, he doesn't seem to be able to do that with Pelosi. She seems to be able to outmaneuver him. Right, and the thing is, you know, his uh, experience is in corporate boardrooms, and, you know, that's a very kind of hierarchical society. So whatever the boss says, you do. But, you know, he's in a government where you have co-equal branches, and he just doesn't seem to grasp, or maybe he is starting to right now, that uh, the legislative branch is, you know, constitutionally uh, the equal to the executive branch, and that, you know, he has to accommodate them um, as much as they have to accommodate his presidency. David, from the political commentator, tweeted earlier this morning uh, his observation on this and suggested that uh, Trump really showed the fact that he is really still a political neophyte, and Nancy Pelosi has a black belt in political war gamesmanship and warfare. And and that that's obviously an interesting characterization. But the fact of the matter is, is uh, uh, he's not used to having people stand up to him. No, and it's dangerous because he has something of an authoritarian outlook on political affairs. And that is something um, the United States government, uh, well, has had no kind of precedent, at least not to the degree that Trump seems to be trying to exercise it. So these are kind of scary times uh, for many people here um, south of the border. So, and and it almost seems as if that, that confrontation between those two yesterday to the State of the Union, and it was almost as if the State of the Union speech itself, and as much as it is part of the, the, the Constitution, it, it was more symbolic in the battle between the two of these. But, I mean, we have to step back a little bit, I guess, and say, what's as you just mentioned off the top, what's going on in the country as a result of this? It's, it almost seems as if that battle... Uh, seems to be the, the the number one priority on, on Capitol Hill right now. And the rest of the people, in, not just in, in D.C., but across the country, are saying, hey, what about us? Right. And, you know, the polling numbers that have recently been released show that, you know, the numbers are really going against Donald Trump and his presidency. They think he's being obstinate and being very unreasonable. And, you know, that's why uh, you're seeing him back down. And he's probably right now trying to desperately find a way out of the corner he's been painted into uh, politically. But if I may also add, um, under the Constitution, you know, this is not necessarily required for the president to actually physically be in the chamber. Under Article 2, he's supposed to, of the Constitution, he's supposed to let Congress know about, you know, the state of the nation, how things are going, at an annual address. Uh, Washington, George Washington, the first president, delivered it at the House of Representatives, but his successor, Thomas Jefferson, did not choose to do so. He sent a written copy of the State of the Union. And that was the tradition throughout the 19th century. It wasn't until Woodrow Wilson in, uh, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century that it went back to, you know, a president physically being in the House of Representatives chamber. So, you know, President Trump can still deliver the State of the Union. He can do it in written form. He doesn't have to be in the House chamber. But, again, he wants to use the chamber as kind of a theater prop to show that he is the great, you know, magnificent president of the United States. He has all this power and so forth and all the trappings. And Nancy Pelosi has just really, you know, stopped him dead in the tracks. Well, given the the, the impact of media can have on these days, you're absolutely right. There's no chance any president's going to just submit a written copy of this. They want, they want that theater. They want that platform, don't they? 
Right. It's the ultimate bully pulpit. And that's why Woodrow Wilson did it back at the beginning of the 20th century. He had an ambitious domestic reform program, including creating the Federal Reserve banking system in the United States. And he thought the best, most effective way to communicate that to the nation was to be physically present in the House of Representatives to deliver the State of the Union. So, you know, it's a great political commercial, and that's really what it is. And Ronald Reagan kind of took it to another degree, kind of by adding all these theatrical movie touches, you know, bringing in great American domestic heroes, you know, you know, war heroes mm-hmm. and so forth, you know, people that save lives. And, you know, Bill Clinton ran with that as well. So it's a big kind of stage production um, in modern times. Let's, let's talk about what else is going on here, because outside the bubble there in the Beltway, uh, as you say, there are, there are, you know, right now government workers that have not received paychecks for almost five weeks now. Uh, I was uh, a little concerned, and I'm sure a lot of American people were, to hear the comments of uh, Wilbur Ross, uh, one of uh, Donald Trump's uh, cabinet members, uh, opining today that uh, he can't understand why government workers are lining up at food banks now to get food. Uh, that and, and, of course, uh, Trump's uh, daughter-in-law, I guess, made a similar comment the other day saying, what's the big deal about missing a couple of paychecks? This is kind of the Marie Antoinette left the meat cake moment, isn't it? It really is, and that's what happens when you have kind of a cabinet of billionaires, of corporate executives. Uh, they're not exactly feeling the pain of the masses. And the problem also here is that it threatens the American economy, which, ironically, has been doing quite well under Donald Trump. This, in combination with the trade war, you know, threatens to sink it into a deep recession. And right now, um, TSA workers at the airports, you know, who basically check for security, uh, they're beginning not to show up at work because they're not getting paychecks. And if they don't do that, our entire transportation network hub is going to shut down. It's going to cause chaos throughout the international community. Goods and services, people will not be able to get around. And that's going to put a big chill, not only in American economy, but the global economy as well. Well, you saw at the press release yesterday from the Pilots Association and, and the uh, uh, Safety Board simply saying, look, at it, we can't go on like this. There's going to be a tragedy if this goes on. And other groups have done the same thing uh, in the last couple of weeks with dire warnings about this, and I think legitimately dire warnings. Uh, now, but they seem to be a, a rather generic, hey, we just have to fix this. But who's this putting the pressure on, Pelosi or Trump? Right now it's Trump because Trump unwisely, before cameras, uh, said he would take full responsibility for the shutdown, that it would be the Trump shutdown. And he was more or less set up by Nancy Pelosi and the Democratic leader uh, in the Senate, uh, Chuck Schumer from New York. Yeah, and, and I think everybody's seen that video one time or another, and that, 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 that kind of put down where Pelosi really stood up to him and said, don't try to characterize or define me. And, and they, you could see the way they were baiting him. And, and obviously, I wonder if that was the stated goal. Let's get him to take this on. Now, he's tried to deflect that over the last couple of weeks and try to put this on the Democrats, even with his so-called compromise from last Saturday. But Pelosi just seems to keep throwing the ball back in his court. Right. And he just can't walk back from that soundbite. You know, you know, that's what people remember. It's kind of uh, embedded in their brains now. And so that's why, you know, his poll numbers are going way, way down, even among uh, Republicans. He's he, he loves public relations, obviously. He, he he I think he probably looks at polls all the time. The, the numbers I saw yesterday had him down at, uh, I guess, around 31, 32 uh, percent. Does he concern himself about that? 
well. They're certainly abysmal, especially since we're heading into a presidential election. You know, we're about a year away from the New Hampshire primary and um, Iowa caucuses. So, I mean, to have those kinds of numbers as an incumbent president is not a good sign that you're going to get reelected. How much pressure is on Mitch McConnell right now? Now, I know there are going to be two votes in the Senate today, but it's really kind of a, a, a show here, isn't it? Because, I mean, he's essentially going to present a bill which, which encompasses the compromise that Trump talked about. It's, I know a lot of Republicans don't even like it, so it's probably not going to pass. And there's another one about right. opening up the government. So, But the reality here is they're saying, look at the two bills that were passed in bipartisan fashion in both uh, the, Cong- the, the, the House of Representatives. and the- Reintroduce those. McConnell will not do that. Right, for right now, but as the numbers continue to slide, you know, uh, Republicans are going to get blamed uh, by way of association with President Trump. And at some point, uh, Mitch McConnell is going to throw up his hands and say, you know, we have to act on this because many Republican senators and congressmen are going to be up for re-election as well in 2020. Including McConnell, isn't a, he? Yeah, and it'll be an electoral bloodbath um, if this shutout, you know, shutoff basically continues and, you know, people blame uh, Trump and the Republican Party. So he has, you know, political self-interest here to end this as soon as possible. So if with that goal in mind, uh, who's going to get the credit? I mean, it's interesting. Right now, the blame is, is going towards, as you say, it's going towards McConnell and especially towards the Oval Office right now. But but is there any effort at all on either one of these sides to say, okay, we're going to be the ones that are going to end this? I mean, somebody's going to have to give, and I don't get the sense that Pelosi's going to do that. Though the Democrats have basically floated the idea that they will give the five-point-whatever billion dollars for border security. They just don't want it to go into expressly a wall. So that seems to me to be a, a major concession on the Democrats' part. But he's fixated on a physical barrier between Mexico and the United States. And the ball, to me, really seems politically in Trump's court. Isn't that kind of a a double standard, though? He keeps talking about security, 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 Uh, yet the fact that the shutdown's going into his fifth week right now, uh, just what everybody else is saying, Mr. President, you're increasing the security risk now by doing what you're doing. It's true, but that's, that's the problem with Trump, because he is tied to this kind of extremist element of the Republican Party, kind of their isolationist and therefore so-called border control. And uh, they also have links to the white nationalist uh, parties in the United States. And, you know, he is more or less wedded to them until further notice. And that's what's causing the problem. He is basically, you know, connected to extremists. Well, interesting point, just I, I don't want to get too deeply into the Mueller thing, because we'd be here all morning if we did that. But uh, another interesting revelation yesterday uh, with some of the documentation that came out of Russia is that the NRA may well have been involved in, in some of the, the back and forth that was going on between uh, the Russians and, and some of the Trump operatives, etc. Uh, I don't know how far that's going to go, but it, uh, it's one thing, I guess, another among many yesterday that raised a few eyebrows. Right, and the NRA, you know, the, uh, there were a number of Russian representatives. I think even the Russian ambassador went to the NRA convention. You know, they were certainly sending their feelers out. And the NRA is an important element to the Republican conservative base politically in the United States. So, you know, if they wanted Trump to become president, um, that would be a good place to, um, to start and to um, throw some money around and um, have influence. 
Uh, the whole world is watching. I know that's an old phrase, but it seems very apt in this description. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for the time today. really appreciate your input. Thank you. Good morning. Take care now. That's uh, Thomas J. Whalen, uh, Professor of Social Science at Boston University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.